The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. And I don't think those words have ever been more true than they are tonight. I, I, I look around and watch the news and watch social media and hear the pronouncements, and I am just in absolute disbelief of what is going on around us. Here we have victims of this coronavirus on news channels being interviewed, talking about how it felt like a cold and was this and that and the other thing. Yet governments are taking the extreme actions of things like shutting down all the bars and restaurants in a state. That's what's happened here in New York. It's um, particularly difficult for me because my sister actually owns a couple bars and restaurants. It's her, it's her you know, livelihood. And now it's uh, shut down for at least two weeks, both of these restaurants. And uh, there's no necessarily uh, no reason to believe that at the end of this two weeks, they'll be able to open again. And if they do, will people come back right away? There's so many things, so many angles. And I can only uh, talk about it from my personal experiences, but everyone has stories like this. Don't gather in groups of more than 50 people, or in some cases they're saying 10 people. Don't leave the house. That's what they're saying as well. Again, um, I've always said, may we live in interesting times, but I don't think this is what I was bargaining for. Has anybody else noticed that since this stuff has become what it is, that you turn on Netflix or some of these other streaming services and the films that pop up for you to watch, you know, recommendations, whatever it is, or things like Outbreak and Virus and... um, quarantine, all these these films that relate to um, epidemics or pandemics. And I'm not so sure that's the best thing we should be watching at this point. It seems like that may actually throw a little bit of uh, fuel on the fire. And the, and the sad part about all of this is that I think we're only in the beginning stages of this. I don't know how much more the government can do to restrict what we're doing. They're telling everybody to, to work from home if they can. They're telling people, um, you know, not to travel at all. I don't know. I, I, I don't I mean, I'm sure every one of you is shaking your head and scratching your head and trying to figure out what the heck is going on around us. I hope that um, everybody is safe, though. I mean, I do hope I mean, I, I don't know, you know, what the per- personal circumstances of everybody in our, in our listening audience is or are. But I hope that you're able to take the recommendations from the CDC and the government and uh, act on them and keep yourselves safe. I, I hope I hope that for everybody, not just the listeners, but everybody. You know, the sooner we uh, can get rid of this thing, the sooner lives can go back to normal. Um, but one thing I, I noticed, you know, you ever see that? You see the picture they're using of this virus? Have you seen the picture they, they're using? That thing to me is creepy as heck. I look at that thing and it gives me the heebie-jeebies. Now, of course, you know, it's invisible to the naked eye. This is magnified, I don't know how many thousands or tens of thousands of times. But you look at that thing, which I have on the screen now, and you know those little red tentacle things are the, probably the feelers that, that um, detect healthy cells and attach themselves to it. And then God knows what happens. <laughs> the whole thing is just, it's a stuff of nightmares. Not just what's actually happening, but just looking at this picture and thinking of how these viruses actually work. Um we're not going to, you know, I say it every day, we're not going to talk about this thing, but you can't help it just because it's so incredible what's going on all around us. But um, tonight we're going to be talking about the search for intelligent life in the cosmos. We have a returning guest, Seth Shostak. Seth is an astronomer. He works with SETI. And we'll be talking about the latest efforts to determine whether or not there are other intelligent life forms in the universe that are detectable maybe they're sending us or just sending in general um, radio signals that we can capture and determine you know anything that might have a pattern can be suspect to be from an intelligent origin so we're going to talk about what the latest in all of that is i encourage you to go to our youtube channel and subscribe just go to youtube search for jv johnson when you find the channel hit the subscribe button you can also hit the notification icon That'll help you get alerts when we go live or when we upload bonus content. We both do both of those things quite often. We stream live at least four, sometimes five nights a week. And the bonus content comes when we can put it there. 
Okay, we'll go to break. When we come back, we'll bring our guest, uh, Seth Shostak, into the program. He's an astronomer. We're going to be talking about the search for intelligent life in the cosmos. It's beyond reality. We'll be right back. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We have a great show lined up for you tonight. It's always exciting when we bring a guest back to the program, and that's the case tonight. We've got Seth Shostak joining us. Seth, of course, is a senior astronomer at SETI, and we're going to be talking about the search for intelligent life in the cosmos, one of the most lingering and persistent questions of mankind. Seth, welcome back to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you with us again. Well, it's good to be back, J.V. Let's talk a little bit about you before we get into the search itself. How long have you been doing this? Well, uh, I think I did my first SETI experiment in 1981. So uh, that's, a, that's a while. That's uh, almost 40 years. Uh, you know, that, anytime someone starts talking like that, I just have to shake my head because it's amazing that that much time has gone by. Um, you know, the 80s were, were my coming of age, if you will, and uh, to think that that was 40 years ago is just its kind of hard to believe. Well, I find it hard to believe myself, and I'm sure I'll wake from this dream any moment now. <laughs> yes. So, um, you know, somebody doesn't just start working for SETI and, you know, and start doing experiments and, and researching this. You must have um, either had an experience along the way or just find, found an amazing curiosity that grabbed you um, maybe as a child or, or growing up. What happened? Well, it's true that I was interested in aliens as a kid because I would go to the movies every weekend, and there were plenty of aliens there who were apparently intent on wiping out humanity. I'm not quite sure what was in it for them, but uh, so uh, I certainly uh, saw a lot of aliens as a kid, and uh, I think that may have uh, sort of precipitated the interest, but, you know, in school, and in particular in graduate school, I uh, studied astronomy and radio astronomy, and it turns out that you know, that's the exact discipline that, uh, you know, SETI depends on. I mean, you know, it's kind of the same equipment, just a different uh, scientific goal. Your story of how you became interested fascinates me as well, because that same process was kind of how I became interested in much of this and much of what we talk about here in the program. You know, it's kind of a pop culture thing, a movie thing, a Hollywood thing that gives you enough of an interest that you start looking in to try to sort th- between facts and fiction. But another thing that I find interesting is, you know, for, for those of us who were uh, born in the 60s or before, there was a space race going on. There was a, a call by the president of the United States to uh, learn uh, mathematics and learn science and become educated. I haven't heard that call in a long time. Do you think that the youth of today still have the same motivations that maybe we had, Seth? Um, and therefore, do you think we have uh, enough people entering this field for future efforts? Well, I think so. I mean, it's true that there was a special time there. And it actually began not with the Kennedy speech about going to the moon and doing the other things, whatever those other things might have been. Uh, it was the fact that in 1957, the Soviet Union put up Sputnik. Right. And uh, that really shook the country here. And uh, as a consequence, there was a lot of money poured into science education, beginning at the high school level and, and, and beyond. And I was one of the beneficiaries of that, I have to say. I mean, I certainly remember uh, that, but it was also the case that it was still going when I got to grad school. And so NASA actually paid for my graduate school education. And uh, at the time, it didn't seem so remarkable, but in retrospect, I think it was. Now, is any of that happening today? I I think so. I mean, it may be not specifically along those lines, but, you know, I look around, I see the kids that are interested in astronomy. Astronomy and biology are the two sciences that, you know, kids are most interested in, and, you know, a fair fraction of them will go into those fields. So I'm uh, I'm not terribly worried. You mentioned NASA. For a long time, I think many people had a pretty good understanding of what NASA's objectives were 
and what NASA was about. And right up through, I would say, probably the uh, space shuttle program, which ended, uh, I won't even get the date right now because my concept of time is so off, but it ended. And um, I think maybe there's a lot of folks now that aren't quite sure what NASA's objectives are. Do we, do we have an understanding of what they might be? Well, I'm not sure that NASA does altogether. I mean, they, you know, they have very good people. There's no doubt about it. But um, you know, for a long time, the space enterprises of NASA, and remember, that's not all they do. I mean, you just look at what the acronym stands for, and you realize they do a lot of aviation work. Right. And uh, some of that is done actually not terribly far from where I'm sitting. Uh, the NASA Ames Research Center here in Northern California you know, has the world's biggest wind tunnels, and they're not there really to design spacecraft. They're there to design aircraft. So, you know, that, that's another thing that NASA does. It also does uh, space-based astronomy, right, the Hubble Space Telescope. That's a NASA project. So NASA does a lot of things, but, of course, people do think in terms of their, uh, you know, their space missions. And I don't think you can fault NASA for uh, its robotic exploration. I think it's done a really excellent job on that. And, in fact, it's impressive to me. I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't work for NASA, but I have to say it's very impressive, impressive to me that they build these craft, these rovers, orbiters, whatever they are, designed to work for two years, and then they last for, you know, three or four times that. I mean, yeah. it's amazing. So they're doing a lot of good things, I have to say. But what people, of course, first will think of is manned, crewed, whatever you're going to call them, space missions where we put people on another world. And uh, for a long time now, you know, they haven't really done that. And I'm not sure that it's correct to blame NASA. I think it's because the public doesn't want to foot the bill. We have, um, we'll probably revisit, revisit this topic a little bit later in our discussion, but is your opinion that the conversion from a, uh, a public sector space program to a more private sector one has been successful thus far? Well, so far. I mean, you know, it, it, I mean, the rockets work, right? So. <laughs> and, and I think that, uh, you know, this is the right approach. I mean, even NASA will tell you that. Uh, you, at some point, you turn over a new kind of technology to the private sector because they can exploit it and drive down the cost. You know, the cost, well, the estimates were that every time you put up this, you know, the, um, uh, the, 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 what am I thinking of, the space shuttle, the space shuttle costs like $500 million per launch, and I think that's an underestimate. Wow. Now, why did it cost so much? Well, because every time it came down, you know, to the extent that it did come down, I mean, <laughs> there are parts of it that just went into the ocean and might or might not be retrieved. But when it came down, you had to put it all back together. You had to replace tiles on the outside. You know, all these things that had to be done to service it, $500 million a mission, that's very expensive, yeah. obviously. <laughs> you know, and the people always make the analogy with commercial aviation. I mean, aviation was originally something that was largely being funded by the U.S. Army. But eventually, you know, private companies got into the biz, and that drove the cost down to the point where you could, you know, take a plane and afford to do so. Well, the same is going to happen with space travel. But NASA, of course, uh, is happy to offload the rocket building and uh, concentrate on the science or whatever the mission may be. You know, uh, with today's prices, you can't afford not to travel by plane <laughs> with yeah, with the scares true. that are going on right now, and justifiably so. Um, and the airlines can't give tickets away. Um, let's talk about SETI for a second. When was SETI uh, started? And for those who might not know, what's the acronym stand for? Yeah, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And except for the last letter, it's almost my name. Uh, that's, that's what it stands for, and that acronym is not quite as old as actual SETI. I mean, the first modern SETI experiment was done in 1960 by Frank Drake, uh, an astronomer. Young, he was 30 years old at the time, and a young astronomer at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory's uh, Green Bank, West Virginia's telescopes. And they had just bought a new telescope, their first telescope, and you know, the director of the observatory said, oh, Frank, I think of something to use this thing for. And uh, one thing he came up with was a very simple experiment to try and eavesdrop on radio signals that might be coming from other societies out there in the, in the Milky Way. Uh, and so that was the start of modern SETI. And since then, people have continued to do something rather similar to what Frank was doing back there in 1960, which is to say, 
wielding big antennas and trying to eavesdrop on those signals. And uh, there are other things being done, but that is the fundament of what SETI is about, even today. So if the concept basically started in the 60s, and here we are, uh, what, 40, 60 years later, would you say that the, uh, the effort has been fruitful? Well, we haven't found the aliens yet. There's that, right? Uh, but, you know, you have to look at this as exploration because that's what it is. It's not an experiment where you get a definite result, yay or nay, at right. the end of the day. You can't, uh, you can't ever prove that they're not out there. You can never prove that you know, there's nobody out there in the galaxy because the fact that you haven't found them, all that means is you haven't found them. Right. <laughs> it doesn't mean they're not there. So uh, in, in that sense, it's, a, it's really exploration, not so much as an experiment. But so far, we haven't found anything. And I've, uh, you know, uh, somewhat famously, I, I sort of hesitate to use the word famous with any con- anything connected with me, but uh, about six or seven years ago, bet everybody a cup of Starbucks that we'll find something in the next uh, two decades. And I still stand by that. I think that that may very well happen. But we haven't so far. A couple things concern me about all of this. And when I say concern, I just mean I, I recognize some significant obstacles. Uh, how long, and you must have, there must be computations and formulas or, or some type of, of educated guess to come up with some of these answers, but how long would a, a, um, a civilization have to be broadcasting some kind of repeated radio signal for it to get to us in the in the blink of an eye of time that we've actually been searching for it. I mean, it seems like that's that's throwing a dart a very long way to hit a bullseye. Yeah, well, JV, I think you're absolutely right about that, actually. There are a couple of limitations on SETI as it has been practiced so far. And one of them is indeed this matter of synchronicity. That's the term that's usually applied to this, which is to say, doggone it, we're looking up at the sky at some star system, you know, 50, 100 light years away, and uh, looking for a signal. But on the other hand, if that signal is not pouring into our antenna uh, during the couple of minutes that we're looking in that direction, well, you know, it's no win, right? So it's no score. And you could say, well, what are the chances of that unless they're relentlessly sending signals our way? I mean, if they set up some sort of automated device that just broadcasts message to our solar system for 24-7, you know, for tens of thousands of years, then maybe you have a decent chance to pick it up. But it's unclear why they would ever do that, because, you know, unless they're very close, they don't even know we're here. So, you know, why just broadcast to a random star system? So I think that that is a problem, unless, of course, they have really powerful transmitters that are broadcasting in all directions all the time. Right. Right? It's sort of like the news today, you know, all coronavirus all the time. <laughs> right. if, they're, if they're just broadcasting everywhere, then you don't have to be in a particularly special place to pick up the aliens. If the universe started at, at, an, at an instant, uh, you know, I guess how I, how I simply understand how the Big Bang may have occurred, uh, that means any life that exists kind of started on the same clock. It doesn't mean the life came to be at the same time, but everything kind of started at the same push of a button, the same push of the stopwatch. Is it fair to assume that uh, we may have um, some parallel technologies, a civilization, wherever they may be, uh, kind of right on par where we are, given the fact that maybe everything in the universe started at about the same time? Or am I completely misreading that? Well, I, w- I would never say that, J.V., but it <laughs> is true that while the Big Bang did indeed happen, as you say, kind of in an instant, depends on whose clock you're using, but, you know, it's like 13 and a half billion years ago, the Big Bang goes off. But that isn't the start of the race for everybody because, in fact, there are plenty of, you know, runners in that race, eventual runners in that race that haven't even uh, uh, gotten into the stadium late, uh, yet. For example, our sun, right, and all the planets around it are about four and a half billion years old. In other words, we're the new kids on the block, right? I mean, the universe was around for almost 10 billion years before the Earth was even born, let alone anything on it. So, you know, everybody has their own start time. It's not that everything got started at the same time. Yes, the universe got started at the same time, but, you know, planets, stars, all these things are sort of coming online all the time, about every year, 
they're another 10 stars in our Milky Way galaxy, and you know, with their planets, and some of them may eventually develop Klingons or something, but you know, they're going to be four and a half billion years uh, after us. So not everybody gets started at the same time. So your question, could there be, if you will, a second Earth out there where everybody is kind of like us because they reach the same <laughs> degree of development? I, I don't think that's very likely. What's the uh, distance of the what I would call the nearest systems that we're pointing antenna at? Well, I mean, the nearest other star, I mean, leaving aside the sun, of course, is Proxima Centauri, and astronomy buffs uh, will know that that's about 4.3 light years away, so a little over four light years away. Now, light year, for those who are not into this sort of stuff, is roughly six trillion miles, so it's four times that. Uh, that's, that's a good piece, but that's pretty close on the cosmic scale, and it is known to have two planets, one of which might be habitable. That is to say, it might have the right temperature and conditions to have an atmosphere, maybe oceans, and maybe life. I mean, from what I understand of the universe and what I understand of these distances, four, uh, four uh, light years away does not sound that far away. Well, <laughs> only if you're, you know, into astronomy. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's pretty far if you had to drive it, and assuming that you could drive it, uh, that would take you a really long time. But even in a, a fast rocket, such as the one we sent to Pluto, which is about as fast a rocket as we've ever built, you know, that goes 10 miles a second. Now, 10 miles a second is pretty darn fast, but even so, it would take 75,000 years to get to this uh, nearest wow. other star. So, you know, it, it's near compared to other stars, but it's still very, very far away. And, of course, that means that any signals, radio signals, that would be originating from that system would take four years to get here. That's right. But what's four years? I mean, I watch reruns on TV that are older than that. <laughs> That's true. That's true. What is your personal opinion? Is there intelligent life, um, either as intelligent or more intelligent, that we, we consider ourselves uh, within, within listening distance to us? Well, uh, it depends on what you mean by listening distance. You mean listening to us or are we listening to them? We, we listening for their signals. Oh yeah, no. That, that that that. I mean, otherwise, why do this experiment, right? If there, you know, there's no way that they they could build a, or make a signal that we could pick up, then there's no point in doing the experiment. I mean, you you could say, well, how far away could they be, and we could still pick them up, still pick up their signal. Well, it depends entirely on their transmitting setup. It's like asking, you know, well, how far away can you pick up an AM radio station on your car radio? It depends on, you know, is it a 10,000-watt station, a 100-watt station, a 50,000-watt station, you know, how big an antenna have they got, and that sort of thing. So, you know, you could, you could pick up things conceivably from even other galaxies uh, if they, you know, have a really honking transmitter setup. Often when we think of extraterrestrial life, we uh, all summon these images in our head of uh, what would be considered, I guess, pop culture images that have been planted uh, of these, you know, big eyed kind of overgrown head uh, creatures. Some call them grays, whatever it happens to be. And this obviously isn't necessarily something we'll find out from a, a capturing a radio signal. But is it is it fair to assume that when we encounter something like this, we are going to encounter some kind of bipedal, uh, almost humanoid-like creature? Or is that something that we, we can't even begin to know what we'll encounter? Well, there are mixed opinions on that. I mean, you know, I, I think that if you were living uh, 70 million years ago and you were a dinosaur... And somebody asks you, what do you think the aliens look like? And you say, well, I mean, they're going to be, uh, you know, uh, small heads at one end, long necks and long tails, right? They're going to look like me, maybe right. a dinosaur. Now, you know, so you could say, well, so, sure, so does that mean that the aliens could look like anything? And well, maybe, but on the other hand, you know, we are adapted for a tool-building species in a way. We don't walk on all fours, even though there might be some advantages to that in some circumstances anyhow. But by not walking on all fours, we have these two upper appendages called our hands, our arms, and uh, those are great for building things and smelting you know, iron and developing a, a technological society, which you know, gives us the opportunity to maybe uh, turn on uh, radio transmitters and get in touch. So if we pick up something from somebody else, 
the chances are they're not walking on all fours unless they're six-legged six and they have two left over for building things. I mean, you know, those are the kinds of considerations that are really kind of, I guess you could say engineering considerations. The fact that we have two eyes, for example, and they're high up. They're not in our tummies, right? right? Because if they were in your tummies, to begin with, your shirt would probably block the view. <laughs> but, but beyond that... You know, you really want them high up so you can see over the vegetation or whatever, see far enough away that you don't get eaten by some predator. So that's something that would apply to them, too. Uh, having two eyeballs is obviously better than one because with one you don't have stereo vision and all these sorts of things. You can just go s- sort of down a list. There are books out there which which do exactly that, and they say, well, you know, these kinds of things are good and those kinds of things are good. But it isn't to say that the aliens would really look like us, but they might have some things in common. I'm going to mention a four-letter word that actually I think has 11 letters, uh, and that's coronavirus. Do we fear and should we fear that maybe the alien life that we're looking for, not going to be sending radio waves, but it would in fact be hitchhiking on some uh, some other interplanetary uh, object in the form of a virus or a bacteria that could present itself here and be an, an extinction kind of event? Well, that makes for a good uh, movie plot. And, in fact, uh, there was the Andromeda Strain, which was, a, I guess, originally a book by, what, Michael Crichton? Uh, yeah, where this infection comes from space and, you know, begins wiping people out. Well, fortunately, it didn't seem to wipe out the gerbils, so I guess they would survive. <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> I, I, I don't think that that's terribly realistic, and here's the reason. It's not that life couldn't come from far away. It could, at least in principle. There, there's some argument about that because while it's one thing to put a microbe in a rock, kick it off Mars, and you know have it survive its trip to the Earth, it's a lot harder for it to survive a trip from some other planet around some other star because that means it's in space for tens of thousands of years, if not more, and uh, all that time, it's you know, there's no liquid water for it, and there's hard radiation in space. But let's just leave all that aside. There's there's another point, and that is that the things that make you sick, like coronavirus, you know, it's not an alien. The coronavirus is another Earthling. Okay, I mean, you can argue about whether it's even alive, but it's it's the product of four billion years of evolution on Earth. So it knows exactly what to do if it gets inside you and then starts, you know, manipulating the mechanisms in your cells to make more copies of itself. In order to be able to do that, it has to be very finely tuned to whatever is in your cells, the DNA, you know, the, uh, the ability to make proteins, whatever. That, that whole complicated biological process, it has to work with you. And if, <laughs> if it came from another, another planetary system far away, you know, it wouldn't be tuned in to uh, earthly life, and I suspect it probably wouldn't make you the least bit sick. Okay, I can check that one off my list of things to be afraid of then. Yeah, there are things you might want to be afraid of, <laughs> such as door-to-door salesmen, but maybe not this. Um, we're going to go to break here in just a minute, but before we do, you've got a couple of websites. Uh, I know the, the SETI.org is one uh, that we want to mention, then BigPictureScience.org. You just want to tell folks what each of those sites are? Sure. SETI.org is the SETI Institute's website. I always recommend people check that out. And, uh, of course, we also have a one-hour weekly science program. It's also a podcast uh, called Big Picture Science, and you just go to bigpicturescience.org, and you can see uh, the shows we have there and uh, check them out. Seth, are we in a new space age? Things like, it seems like we've turned a corner here, and some people are saying that we're on the dawn of some major discoveries. What do you think? Well, I think we're always on the dawn of major discoveries. I mean, it, it's kind of remarkable because a hundred years ago, if you had talked to scientists in academia, they, they, I think you would have found more than a few that would say, well, we've pretty much got science nailed, right? And uh, maybe not a hundred years, make it 120 years ago right. before Einstein came up with relativity and sort of threw the whole thing you know, out of whack because suddenly the universe was much more complicated than we thought. And since then, we've continued to come up with new discoveries. I mean, you know, today 95% of the universe is kind of missing in action. We don't know what dark matter is. We don't know what dark energy are, but they constitute 95% of the universe. We don't even know what they are. So 
you know, discoveries are made all the time. In astronomy, we find things all the time. Uh, we, we've got these fast radio bursts, for, for example, that uh, sort of sprung up about 13 years ago for the first time. About 100 of them had been found. We still don't have any really good idea about what they are. So uh, all I can say is that the universe has uh, conspired to uh, keep uh, scientists employed, at least for a while. We have been sending what seems to be some rather successful uh, unmanned craft to various places, particularly Mars. What are we learning about Mars, and is it changing the way we think about the rest of what we're looking at in space? Well, Mars has always been our favorite target uh, to investigate, I think largely because if you you know were somebody interested in the sky, 200 years ago, and we go back in time again, 200 years ago you have a small telescope. You know, you can look at the nearby worlds in our solar system, like Venus, but Venus is covered in thick clouds. You don't see anything, really. Uh, Mercury just is a little dot. Jupiter and Saturn are kind of interesting because they have lots of moons and rings and, you know, bands and spots and things like that. But all that stuff you're seeing on the surface of those planets, that's the weather. And it was realized even back then that that was the weather. So, you know, but Mars, Mars is different from all these other places because Mars, it has a clear atmosphere, so you can see right down to the surface. It's not like Venus. And uh, even with these crummy telescopes of 200 years ago, you could see that there were some markings on Mars, dark markings. And then, you know, 100 years later, people were claiming there were canals, too. Well, those turned out to be optical illusions. But, but Mars continues to be interesting to us because it's the planet that seems most like the Earth. And the efforts going on there now include drilling into the Martian surface to look for what exactly? What are we trying to find by doing that? Well, there are various things you might be interested in to begin with. You know, does Mars have a source of internal heat? Of course, it must have some, but, you know, uh, Earth has plate tectonics. Things move around. The continents move around. And uh, you can see <laughs> the consequences of that are actually pretty good because, yeah, occasionally an earthquake will shake down San Francisco, giving it instant urban renewal. <laughs> but on the other hand, if this wasn't happening, you know, you wouldn't be recycling uh, carbon dioxide, which, although it has a sort of a bad consequence these days, you know, it's necessary to do that in order to keep life going and so forth and so on. So all that internal heat is important to uh, to life here on planet Earth, not just to building mountains and producing volcanoes and all that sort of stuff, but it's, it's essential to life. Now, Mars, you know, looks pretty dead. I mean, in terms of the geology, nothing seems to be moving. You don't see too much plate tectonics. You don't see erupting volcanoes. There are volcanoes on Mars, pretty big ones, but they last, you know, shot their bolts billions of years ago, right? So it looks like, you know, Mars is kind of geologically dead. But it may not be. Its death may be overstated, as uh, Mark Twain would have said. <laughs> so by sending these, these sort of darts, if you will, these probes to Mars that go down a little bit, then it gives you some idea what the temperature is uh, deeper inside Mars. And, you know, the other thing you're interested in when it comes to Mars, of course, is the history of the water there. I mean, if you're going to look for life on Mars, you, you know, you've got to find some water. And there is water under the surface of Mars. It's called ice. And, you know, you want to you wanna investigate that, too, because there's a lot of ice. And there was a time when maybe it wasn't all ice and some of it was liquid, and you'd like to know more about that. Going back to SETI's mission and the listening that SETI has been doing for a long time, it helped me understand how that listening takes place. Are there... Uh, specific telescopes pointed at specific star systems, or is this just one big giant breadbasket catching everything that comes in? Well, it would be great to have such a breadbasket. You know, it would be wonderful if you could look at all the sky all the time over all the radio dial. That would be that would be ideal because then you would feel at least confident that if there was a signal that was, you know, impinging on our world, we'd we'd pick it up. But for technical reasons, not to mention financial ones, you can't do that. So uh, SETI is being run only in a few places by very few people, the total number of people in the world who are doing SETI research with actual observations is, you know, it's maybe a few dozen, maybe not, not even that many. So it's, it's pretty small, and they're all Americans at the moment, although that hasn't always been the case. So, 
you know, they have access to some antennas. We use what's called the Allen Telescope Array in Northern California, but uh, we point it in the direction of nearby star systems, thinking that, okay, uh, maybe they have a planet with somebody on it with a transmitter. So that's what you do. You look at the one particular star system for a while, uh, going up uh, and down the radio dial, trying to check out as many frequencies as you can, and then you move on to another star system, and then another one, and then another one. That's really slow going, but thanks to improvements in technology, uh, the chances are pretty good that within 10 years or so, we'll be able to check out something like a million star systems. And that's why I bet that uh, cup of Starbucks that we'll, we'll find something. In, because if you check out a million star systems and you still don't pick anything up, you know, then you're probably doing the wrong experiment. The um, listening itself, obviously you're, you're capturing radio waves that are coming from distant systems, but what are you listening for? Is it patterns? Yeah, most people do figure it's patterns because that's what the movies always show. You know, oh, here comes a string of uh, prime uh, numbers or <laughs> the value of pi or the Fibonacci series or here's my neighbor's license plate number or something. <laughs> it just tells me that, you know, this isn't a random, this isn't random noise in the cosmos. This is intelligence. Well, yeah, that that would be a good test, but it turns out that, again, for technical reasons that are, generally speaking, uninteresting on the radio, uh, it uh, it's not the way it's done. What you look for is a signal that's, uh, you know, essentially over a very small range of frequencies, just like your favorite top 40 station, right? It's at, uh, you know, 720 kilohertz on the dial or whatever, wherever it is. It's not everywhere on the dial. And that's the signature of a transmitter. So that's the kind of thing we look for. We're, we're not so worried about whatever the patterns might be in there because actually in order to make the experiment very sensitive, we throw away that information. So even if they are sending us, you know, lovely uh, couplets in uh, iambic pentameter or something, you're not going to get that stuff. So apart from that, we're, we're, you're hearing a lot of things. You're getting a lot of signals. Where do all those other signals come from? Are they just naturally occurring? Yeah, there, there is a lot of radio noise coming from space. In fact, that was my, uh, my job for a long time, to uh, kind of analyze that sort of stuff, because you can learn a lot about the cosmos by doing that. But, you know, for example, let me give you a simple example. Um, Jupiter. Jupiter has strong magnetic fields, and, you know, so these charged particles uh, sort of washing around in its, <laughs> in its atmosphere. And these charged particles in a magnetic field is just like a generator, like the, the kind the local utility uses. So, you know, it makes a strong electric uh, fields and so forth, and this produces radio waves. But if you listen to it, if you tune it in, and, of course, astronomers do tune it in, all you hear is what sounds like white noise going up and down, you know, sort of, you know, that kind of thing. Right. You'd get tired of listening to that after a while, but if you study it and just measure it, you can learn something about what's going on in Jupiter's uh, upper atmosphere. We have antennas on the ground do we have any antennas that are in space, uh, and is, it any, is there any advantage to having them there? Well, no, there's not, actually. <laughs> in my opinion, there's not. A lot of people you know, will call me up and say, I, I know what you guys ought to do. Put all your equipment up in orbit, you know, or, or maybe on the moon. You know, putting it on the moon might be a good deal if you could put it on the far side of the moon, on the back side, because then at least it wouldn't, you, know, you wouldn't be picking up all the interference from Earth. But, you know, that's a very expensive proposition, so that's not going to happen for a while. But putting them in orbit, which is something you could do, that, that isn't so good either, actually. It doesn't really get you any closer to any aliens, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, the International Space Station is, what, 300 miles up, 200 miles up, something like that. That's not really going to get you any closer to the Klingons. But the real point is, if you're in orbit then you're sort of in a direct line of sight with all sorts of interfering transmitters on Earth. So you've actually made your situation worse, not to mention the fact that you can't, you know, lift into space a very big antenna anyhow. So the atmosphere, the Earth's atmosphere, doesn't distort any of these signals or make them difficult to receive? Not at the frequencies normally used for SETI. At very high frequencies, yes, that's a problem. If you go to higher frequencies above about, I don't know, 50 gigahertz or something, uh, then the uh, water vapor in the Earth's atmosphere does interfere. But generally speaking, uh, SETI experiments in most radio astronomy, for that matter, are done at lower frequencies where the atmosphere really doesn't get in the way. How confident are we that an intelligent uh, 
life form on a system, a distant system, uh, will use radio waves in the same way that we expect them to use. And maybe, and, and I'm going to throw something out here without any basis for any education on this, but maybe they're using light as a transmitting mechanism, which, you know, we, we use, I mean, you know, some other spectrum that uh, we wouldn't expect. How do we, how can we be confident that how we understand radio waves is the way that we might get some kind of signal? Yeah, well, I mean, that's actually not a crazy idea at all. The idea that they might be communicating with light. Uh, in particular, if you have a big laser, you can send lots of bits per second uh, one place to another. I mean, people are familiar with fiber optics, for example, and you can get a lot more bits uh, per second down a fiber optic than you can down a, a cable. Right. Uh, so, and, and, you know, that's the way you're... <laughs> Your 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 home will be connected to the internet in the future. You want as many bits per second as you can get. So yeah, that makes sense. This to fire lasers into space. Now there's some disadvantages to that. To begin with, uh, laser light, at least if it's at the at the wavelengths that you can see with your eyeball, uh, you know, are blocked by the dust between the stars over long distances. So there, there's a slight downside there, but. In general, you're right. I mean, flashing lasers may be the way that they communicate. And so there are new SETI experiments that are looking for exactly that, flashing laser lights. But that isn't to say that you wouldn't use radio. I mean, as, as good as, you know, sending stuff over a beam of light may be for us, we'll still be using radio for something uh, forever, I mean, whether it's radar or, you know, just communications with our uh, colonies in space or whatever. So it isn't that you stop using one part of the spectrum when you develop another part of the spectrum. You just use more of the spectrum. Well, I know that to be true as well um, as someone who's been in radio for a very long time and owned radio stations. I've continually watched the FCC struggle with how to allocate parts of the radio spectrum um, for increasingly more demand. And things like cell phones and other devices are starting to take up more and more of the radio spectrum, making it much more crowded. So uh, your point is well taken. Yeah, no, that's true. There's never enough spectrum. (laughs) That's true. So over the years, uh, actually, let's focus on more recently what has SETI heard, quote-unquote, uh, that has maybe peaked an eyebrow or two? Well, you know, the, the, the facts are that the experiment now uses receivers that don't just pick up one frequency at a time or one small range of frequencies at a time, like your TV does or your FM radio or any other kind of radio setup. We actually try and monitor as many channels, as many frequencies as we can, because after all, we don't, we don't know where on the dial we should be listening, so we try and listen as much as possible to as much of the dial as we can. All right. Now, do you ever pick up other signals? Yeah, we pick up signals all the time. In fact, that's a problem because you, know, you get all these signals and, you, you know, you could just sit there and scratch your head, oh, another signal, Bob. Uh, you know, you think it's ET? <laughs> well, it could be ET. Or is it just some, you know, telecommunications satellite wheeling overhead? Or is it a radar set up down, uh, you know, 100 miles away? What is it? And so over the years, we've developed a pretty sophisticated techniques for sort of sorting out signals that are coming from earthly or at least human uh, activities versus something that's really coming from ET. And when you do that, then all the signals that you're picking up, and typically you pick up many uh, every minute, uh, you know, that they're all well-known terrestrial interference signals. So we throw those away. But every now and again, you get a signal that looks pretty good, and you have to check it out, and we do. So far, they've all turned out to be, alas, they've all been due to homo sapiens, whoever that is. <laughs> what um, what constitutes a, a, a good signal? Uh, is it... Is it- um, the frequency that it's on, is it, uh, again, we mentioned repetition, you kind of dispelled that. But, uh, I mean, I, I'm trying to discern what good noise is and what bad noise is. Yeah, well, uh, good noise is a noise that doesn't keep you awake at night, I guess. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a signal that, yes, it's at, you know, uh, over a very narrow range of frequencies on the dial, because that tells you it's a transmitter, but it doesn't tell you whether it's a Klingon transmitter, or whether it's a human transmitter. So what you have to do is sort of follow the signal over the course of a couple of hours, maybe minimum, 
and just see if the direction from which it's coming is sort of slowly moving around the sky the way the stars do because of the rotation of the Earth. I mean, we have that well in hand. We know the Earth rotates roughly every 24 hours, and so these signals, you know, move like 15 degrees an hour. They should across the sky. But if it's if it's the local radar setup, it's not going to move across the sky. Right. If it's a telecommunications satellite, you know, in orbit around the Earth, anybody who's seen satellites at night know that they cross the sky in about 10 minutes. They don't take hours and hours to go across the sky. So that's a very, very good discriminant. If you can see that it's a signal, and it's a narrowband signal coming from uh, some spot on the sky that's slowly, you know, wheeling around because of the rotation of the Earth, then you can say, okay, I don't know what it is. I don't know what they look like. I don't know what their tensions are, and I don't know what they like to have for lunch, but it's clearly coming from some other, uh, some other star system. Obviously, when this started, uh, you said in the 60s, computer technology was rather infantile compared to what we've got today. How important is new computer technology in sorting out and identifying promising signals? Well, it's absolutely essential. I mean, the, the history of SETI's improvement over the 60 years that we've been talking about is largely the history of the development of computers. Yes, there are other technologies involved, for sure, but it's the growth in computer power that has sped up the search. And indeed, the search by, you know, some reasonable metric, some reasonable indication of how fast you're, you're looking for ET, it more or less doubles every two years, and that's the speed at which uh, compute powers uh, doubling, you know, it doubles every two years too. Every every couple of years, you have to buy yourself a new laptop because the old one is too slow. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's maddening. Go. That's maddening. Um, often, uh, I'll be looking through news stories and finding information for the show, and I'll see a news article that says, uh, you know, repeating signal being heard from whatever scientists think this may be something. Uh, do those stories come from SETI? Because if you're telling me that repeating signals aren't necessarily what you're looking for. Uh, are there other people doing this listening as well that might be responsible for some of these stories? Well, not really. I mean, most recently, there have been a lot of play in the media about what's called an FRB, fast radio burst. Right. Uh, one discovered, or at least announced fairly recently, it was actually discovered one and a half years ago, but uh, that repeats every 16 days. Okay, and so, you know, if you're Mr. and Mrs. Front Porch and you hear, gosh, there's a signal coming from the sky and it's repeating every 16 days, it's obviously some aliens trying to get in touch, right? Well, it could be, except that it really couldn't be. These fast radio bursts, and there have been like a hundred of them have been found, uh, some of them repeat, you know, a small handful of them actually don't just go off once and then disappear forever. Some of them repeat, and if they repeat, then you can sort of uh, zero in on exactly where they're coming from. That's very hard to do if you only hear it once, because you can't train a better instrument in its direction and, and hope to pick it up and narrow down where its, where its uh, origin is. And the three or four that have the ability to repeat or have repeated are located, well, in case of this most recent one that repeats every 16 days, that's coming from a galaxy 500 million light years away. Oh, wow. I mean, you know, that, that, that's more than I've got on my Honda. That, that's a tremendous distance. But the other repeaters are, you know, three million light years this way and one million light years that way and all in different directions. So these are, this is not a, you know, some sort of alien club where they've all decided to broadcast these short radio bursts into space. I mean, they're so far apart from one another that, you know, they really can't communicate with one another. And as a consequence, this is some sort of natural phenomenon. But because it looks so regular, you know, people say, oh, they jump to the conclusion that it's aliens. Well, you know, aliens should be on your list of things that might be causing a phenomenon, but they shouldn't be the first thing on your, on your list. We're, we're listening, we're receiving uh, whatever signals we can receive. Are we also uh, sending uh, transmissions in hopes that someone will hear us? Well, there have been such attempts. Uh, it's, it's sometimes called active SETI, but it basically just is, you know, okay, we're going to deliberately send a signal in the direction, you know, to this star system over here. That was first done actually in 1974 down in Puerto Rico, 
and uh, the, the signal was sent to a, a cluster of stars in our own galaxy. But, of course, that cluster is about 25,000 light years away. So, you know, it's almost 25,000 years before it gets there. Yeah. And another 25,000 years for their disinterested response gets back to us. So that's not, you know, that, that, that's too long to wait. I mean, let's face it. But uh, in, in, what was it, 2008, NASA used one of their transmitters to broadcast a Beatles song to the North Star. Now, I don't know if the North Star has planets. Maybe it does. Uh, I don't know if anybody's there. But, it, you know, the North Star is like 400 light years away. So it will take 400 years for this Beatles song to get there. Right, and then you know another four hundred years before you get the response that you know send us Rolling Stones or something <laughs> like that. That's eight hundred years. I mean, that's, so broadcasting to the sky. Some people think it's dangerous. I'm not one of those people. I don't think there's any uh, added danger in doing any of this. I think it's maybe an interesting thing to do, but you have to have a lot of patience. Well, that that was going to be my next question. There are some scientists and and great thinkers like Stephen Hawking who has have warned us in the past about letting anyone know that we might be here. It might be better for us to remain rather inconspicuous. Thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, Hawking did say that, but he, he said it in one or two sentences. So, I, I, you know, it isn't that he wrote papers about this or he attended conferences and made this argument. It was kind of an off the, uh, offhand comment by him. And uh, because it's Stephen Hawking, of course, his offhand comments are taken very seriously, there are certainly people who agree that, you know, broadcasting into space could be dangerous. We shouldn't do it. But, I, you know, it's very easy to show, J.V., uh, honestly, that any society that could actually be a threat to you, any society that could somehow send weaponry in our direction and have it actually get here and do anything, they're so much more advanced than we are, you can be sure they have big antennas, too. And so they, they could pick up, you know, our transmissions that are going into space, even though we're not deliberately transmitting. Mm. Things like airport radars, for example, or the dew-line radars, you know, national defense radars. All these are very powerful signals that just shoot off into space, and their, their purpose is not to alert them, the aliens that were here and they ought to come, come to our planet and, you know, eat us out of house and home. I mean, they, <laughs> they're, they're just part of our society and if you're going to say, oh, but that could be dangerous and forbid all that, then you're just going to hamstring the activities of humans forevermore. And that doesn't strike, strike me as a good idea. If we do get an answer, if we do get some kind of variable, uh, verifiable information, uh, radio signal or otherwise, that there is someone else, something else out there with an intelligence to be able to communicate with us, how does that change our world? Well, I, I don't know. Nobody seems to, I mean, nobody could really know. Uh, it's, you know, like asking, well, I mean, uh, suppose you invent uh, quantum mechanics. How does that change our world? And, uh, you know, for a long time it was very unclear how that would change our world. So it, it's, it, it's, I don't know that we can say, but a couple of things are fairly obvious. I mean, in the beginning, if you found a signal, of course, uh, everybody with a telescope would aim in the direction of that source, and we would try and learn as much as we could. You know, are they on a planet? Are they sending any information? You know, are they sending any pictures so we at least know what they look like? And then all those sorts of things. Uh, but I think in the long term, uh, it's it's quite hard to know because you might think, well, maybe we should get in touch. And if they were only, you know, 10 light years away or 15 light years away, that, that would be a practical thing to con to contemplate. But if they're 500 light years away, you know, it's not going to be a, much of a conversation when it takes a thousand years to get an answer to a question. So I, I think that anybody who's deliberately broadcasting into space with the idea of somebody like us picking it up, they're probably going to put some, some useful information in there because otherwise it's not very interesting for them. And so maybe we would learn something, you know, astounding. Maybe they would give us all the secrets to the universe. I mean, who knows? Uh, I, I just don't know. But I, at least you could say you know that as nifty as Earth is and how wonderful that humans are, we're, we're not the only thing around. Is there some type of universal language? Let's say that a signal is received that you suspect to be uh, of intelligent origin. 
Do you have a, a method by which you can send information that you are fairly confident that another intelligent race would be able to decipher and understand? Well, I, I don't know about that. There are people who do think about these things and, you know, even invent uh, languages uh, based on mathematics or some other basis that they figure the aliens will understand. You know, music, of course, <laughs> close encounters of the third kind. Yeah, right. <laughs> communicating by music. I don't know that music is a great way to communicate. I mean, I'm all for music, mind you, but uh, not for communication. If I need to order something at the local fast food place, you know, I don't whistle different tunes at them. But it, it, it is seems obvious to me that one thing that they might understand are pictures. So I would send pictures, and you could maybe build up a kind of um, – dictionary for them by showing them pictures of a, a planet, you know, just with the word planet next to it, or uh, a star, or, you know, a sphere, or, I mean, uh, there are a lot of nouns that you might be able to get away with just showing them um, pictures with the words next to them, so eventually they would uh, associate, you know, S-T-A-R, they wouldn't know what that is, but they would understand that that is what we call a star, and so... You know, you might be able to get somewhere with that. I think pictures might work. Anything else seems problematic to me. I mean, obviously, you're not going to send a a Polaroid. Uh, pictures would have to be digitized in some fashion. And how can we be confident that they could decipher the digitized f- image? Oh, I, I don't think that that's terribly uh, worrisome. I mean, you know, if you just send a two-dimensional uh, bitmap, you know, so so all the pixels are either black or white, so they're either ones or zeros. And, uh, you know, people have thought about that, okay, well, you know, is it going to be a square, is it going to be, you know, whatever. Uh, That's all something you could deal with. And the aliens are going to have big computers and they could decipher all that sort of thing. And they could just look for patterns. And I I think that, you know, uh, unless they don't have eyes, I mean, that's possible, but again, doesn't sound terribly likely. If they don't have eyes, maybe they don't understand pictures, but otherwise, these simple bitmap pictures that are essentially line drawings, if you will, I, I think they, could, they, they would recognize what those are. We have recently seen news of various objects passing through our solar system. Is there any hope among the community, and this is a bit of a different mission maybe than uh, SETI's, but is there any hope in, um, among the community that a uh, an artificial object may pass through our solar system that we can get a glimpse on, get a glimpse of, maybe even study, and uh, therefore to, to get an idea of uh, what type of race built it? I know it's a bit far far out there, but... Well, it was the subject of a, a story by Arthur C. Clarke, right? Rendezvous with Rama. And uh, about two or three years ago, when the first rock from somebody else's solar system yes. was detected in ours, right? That was Oumuamua was the easily pronounceable name of this thing, because it was discovered in Hawaii. Um, you know, most people figured, okay, it's an asteroid. Now, mind you, the photos that were used to discover this thing, you know, it was already pretty far away. In fact, it was already leaving the solar system. It had already swung around the sun. And so it just looks like a dot on a photograph. That's all, just a dot. But uh, you could get the orbit, and, you know, that's just using 17th century physics. You could get the orbit of it, and it turns out it was an orbit that, uh, you know, wasn't confined to our solar system. In other words, this was something that was just intruding into our solar system, and it had come in here and it was on its way out. There was a suggestion made, well, how do you know that it's really a rock? You can't see anything. It's just a dot. And, and maybe if you could get up close to it, you would see that it's, you know, some sort of metallic object with portholes on the side and, with, you know, little green guys with three eyeballs looking through the portholes. I mean, it could be. It could be. Uh, and, in fact, the chairman of the Harvard Astronomy Department, a guy by the name of Avi Loeb, he actually wrote papers on this in which he said, well, you know, maybe it's not a, a natural object at all. It could be a solar sail-powered craft, which it could be. But those arguments lost, I think, a lot of their force uh, in the last year when a second object, also from somebody else's star system, was found. <laughs> it turns out once you build telescopes that can find these things, you start finding them you know, every year or two, which means that there are probably just a lot of them out there, and they're probably rocks. Is there anything on the technological horizon, terrestrially, that uh, is going to help advance this whole effort and this whole search 
uh, even further, another quantum leap, if you will? Well, I think so. I mean, it's just like astronomy in general. It benefits from developments in technology that just make everything more, you know, more more powerful, if you will. The experiments are more powerful. We keep building bigger and bigger telescopes. There are telescopes being built now with, you know, mirrors that are like 30 meters in diameter, you know, 100 feet in diameter. Now, when I was a kid, the biggest telescope in the world was the one on Mount Palomar in Southern California, and that's 200 inches. So 30 meters, I mean, you know, that, that's a lot bigger. <laughs> and as a result, it can see, you know, much fainter and farther things. So those are all things that are happening. Uh, I, I think to say, you know, that they're not going to find anything very interesting would be to fly in the face of uh, what we've learned about research, and that is every time your instruments get better, you find new things. So I, I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. We have heard a lot of talk about, uh, and we've talked about Mars, but a lot of talk about manned missions to Mars. That um, is that something we'll see in our lifetime? Well, I hope so. <laughs> Depends on what your lifetime is, JV. <laughs> I would say, you know, be careful crossing the street, <laughs> and, and, and you'll probably see it. I mean, uh, you know, Elon Musk says what he wants to put humans on Mars in the next two or three years. Yeah, and you you could legitimately contest that and say, well, Elon's being a little optimistic here, and he probably is, but, you know, okay, so maybe it takes four or five years or even five or six years. That's, you know, that's pretty soon. That's pretty soon. And it's very dangerous to go to Mars. There are a lot of things that are that can go wrong and kill you en route or on the way back. But on the other hand, there are plenty of people who want to go to Mars, and I make a point some, sometimes, anyhow, uh, if I give a talk, I ask people, how many in the audience here would like to go to Mars? And they're always, you know, the majority of the audience wants to go to Mars. And so then I ask, how many of you would want to go to Mars on a one-way ticket? Mm. And you would think nobody would want to do that, but that's wrong. You know, there are always a, a few handfuls of people who would go to Mars on a one-way ticket. Not me, but there are plenty of people who would, who would do that. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's going to happen. I, want, I wonder if they would put their hand up if, in fact, the, the, the craft was sitting in front of them, waiting them for them to board. Yeah, well, they might get cold feet at that point. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, um, we had a question. We scroll through our chat room here about SETI and how it's funded. How is SETI funded to be able to maintain these operations? Yeah, the only adverb that comes to mind is poorly. <laughs> uh, and, and the reason is, that SETI, when I joined the SETI Institute, you know, back in 1990, um, it was part of a NASA project. So it had NASA money. It wasn't very much NASA money. It was one one-thousandth of the NASA budget, right, which itself is only one one-thousandth of the federal budget. So, you know, one millionth of your tax dollars went to, to SETI. But that was still considered too expensive, and uh, it was canceled in 1993. So since then... All SETI research in this country, and we're the only country doing it now, uh, is privately funded, which is to say it's funded by mostly individuals. I mean, it isn't foundations, it isn't uh, companies, it isn't organizations of any stripe. It's just individuals who think, you know, the, you know the, the, the guys in Galileo's time could never really look for aliens with any hope of success because they didn't have the science or the technology, but today we do, what a shame it would be not to at least look. So that's how it's being funded, but of course, you know, that's very limited uh, resources. And if someone was interested in making some type of contribution, how could they do that? And are there minimums? There's no minimum. Well, I suppose, you know, if it's below a certain uh, amount of money. You probably don't get a response of, you probably don't get a letter in response because of the cost of the stamp. <laughs> but, but, but you can always go to the, uh, for example, the SETI Institute website. Let me at least uh, tout that uh, possibility, the SETI.org. And, uh, you know, you can make it, I mean, it's very obvious where you can make a donation. You mentioned uh, giving talks. Um, is that something you do on a regular basis? Uh, even an irregular basis. Yeah, I give a lot of talks. Uh, I do. And I'm, I'm not sure why people want to come here and uh, want to listen to me. I mean, I get emails from people all the time who think I'm totally misguided because the aliens are actually here buzzing the skies. We hear that, too, yeah. Yes, uh, but uh, even though I, I doubt that that's true, uh, people do come to the talks, and uh, I think it's because of the jokes. That's, uh, that's my theory. 
So uh, anything coming up that you'd like people to know about? Uh, maybe they're, they're private talks? I don't know how it works. Well, some are private and some are not. Uh, there was well, unfortunately, I was supposed to go to four conferences. Oh yeah, you know what? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, <laughs> guess what? Can't do it. And uh, the most interesting, I think, from the public's point of view, may have been uh, an event to be held by and at, by the way, the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson there has organized or had had organized the uh, Isaac Asimov. Uh, event, which they have every year or two or three. I don't know how often it's held. Um, they're in New York, and they they can get, you know, I don't know, a thousand people into the auditorium there. But uh, that was scheduled for, well, scheduled for one week from now, more or less, and that's not going to happen. So it's being postponed. There are talks, but, you know, under the current circumstances, I'm sheltering in place, whatever yeah. that means. Yeah, we all we all are trying to figure out what that means and try to do it. Um, we're, we're out of time, and thank you so much, Seth. But before we go, you've got some books to your credit. Is there any particular book that if someone was unfamiliar with your work that they should start with? Uh, I would recommend the one you mentioned at, this, at the top of the show, the uh, Confessions of an Alien Hunter, National Geographic. You probably have to buy it online these days because it's old enough that it isn't too much in the stores anymore. But Confessions of an Alien Hunter, you can probably buy it for the postage on uh, eBay. <laughs> well, it, I always enjoy talking with you, with you, Seth, because you you frame these discussions into a way that someone like me who has no basis for understanding can actually understand a little bit. So thank you for doing that. Not at all, J.V. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And we look forward to having you back. Again, our guest tonight, Seth Shawstack, and his websites, there are two of them he encourages you to go to, SETI.org, SETI is S-E-T-I, .org, and then BigPictureScience.org, both uh, related to his work. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.